0: Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighbourhoods and cities. I've always enjoyed conversations with colleagues and guests when they've published books and material that helps build the understanding of our cities in an accessible and visual way. This year, I was excited to learn of the collaboration between Tanya Zak and Mark Lewis. Tanya and I have known each other for many, many years from my extended working period in Johannesburg Mark, on the other hand, I hadn't met before, but had been very much struck by his vivid black and white portraits, accessible via the web, in preparing for this particular episode. The collaboration between Mark and Tanya over a four-year period, as photographer and wordsmith respectively, has been packaged into a striking new book, Wake Up, This Is Joburg. It's a visual and storytelling treat showcasing ten diverse spatial locations in the heart of Johannesburg, and it portrays numerous characters and circumstances and reminds us of the vibrancy and essential role that Johannesburg plays and how that can manifest in both contestation and collisions of culture. The book addresses the transformation of people, of places and spaces through vivid images and fascinating stories. Some of those will shock, others will inspire, and some inevitably will lead to questioning of the contemporary urban governance policies that are being used. And also that question of what is appropriate and to whom? What is government's role and how can it do better? Tanya's quick to point out that the project wasn't about framing a policy response, but these are the questions I was certainly left with at the end of the conversation. It was recorded two weeks ago on a Saturday afternoon and passed in a double quick time. It was one of the most enjoyable and intriguing conversations I can remember. The personal journeys that they shared, their affinity to Johannesburg, from both Tanya and Mark, and then the people and the stories that were told as they engaged with those people and places along the way. I hope you'll enjoy the episode as much as I did recording it. It's just gone three o'clock on Saturday, the 11th of February, and I'm delighted to welcome up in Johannesburg, Tanya Zak and Mark Lewis. Welcome to both of you. Tanya, Mark, how are you keeping and where do we find you? I'm right in saying you're in Joburg today, right? That's right. Yes,
1: Yes, we are. Hi, Pete. How are you?
0: Really well. Thanks, Tanya. So nice to see you again. It's been a while, but uh, you guys have been extremely busy, it would seem, over the last four years and looking forward to hearing the story behind your book, Wake Up, This Is Johannesburg or Wake Up, This Is Joburg. Congratulations on the release of the book. I know we'll get into details of when it's been released and how people get, get hold of it. But before we get into the backstories and the actual stories that are told through 10 very distinct themes, places, and people, perhaps you can give us your own background around each of you. What brought you to take this Johannesburg? Many people have written about it. Some are born there. Many of us are pulled towards it. But let's start with yourself, maybe, Mark, your own story that leads you to Johannesburg and a bit behind your career. So I'm from... Clarksdorp,
2: where I was born and brought up and did my schooling, and I think it was Andy Warhol who said, uh, the best thing about a small town is that you've got to get out, and that pretty much sums up my time in, in Clarksdorp, which was great to get out, and Johannesburg was the sort of place to go to, really. In the, in the early days, I, I sort of spent a large part of my time in Johannesburg. But then went to Cape Town and came back to Johannesburg and all this time, I just started, you know, in my very early 20s, started working in the photographic field as an assistant to other photographers who were doing advertising and things like that. I'd never sort of done any photography before. So I began the practice in Cape Town, actually, and then came back to Johannesburg and continued that practice and got involved in fashion photography and um, Johannesburg became the the sort of place that that I you know really wanted to be. I spent quite a large part of of my photographic career in the beginning in London. Then came back in in ninety four and also went back to Cape Town and then in twenty twelve came to Johannesburg and met Tanya and then quite you know a very different shift. Took place in terms of of me in Johannesburg. I'd never sort of encountered Johannesburg through the eyes of a of an urban planner or you know of an urbanist, and it showed me a new sort of way of looking at Johannesburg. And I'd spent quite a lot of time also on the continent, you know, trying to to wonder why, wonder why you know cities like Lagos and Accra and you know Mogadishu and those sorts of cities were so attractive and I could never really find that in South Africa somehow. But I think after the World Cup, things really, really moved for me and and the city turned into something that actually surpassed a lot of the cities that I've been sort of looking up to in the rest of the continent. And Johannesburg, in ter- visually and in terms of the sort of informality of the city, was incredibly um, inspiring. And I found a sort of fellow mate in Tanya that we sort of had a similar interest in the in the dark spaces and the shadow spaces of the city. One kind of needs a reason to go into those spaces. Then they, they're not necessarily spaces that you just wander into. You know, you've got you somehow got to have a reason to be there. And the two of us found that reason in this in this book. It showed a whole new side of johannesburg and a and and a fabulous side and yeah onwards and upwards
0: fascinating i think what one day perhaps we can revisit your time as a fashion photographer there in the uk in the 80s there must be a whole podcast series on (laughs) the fun and games that must have gone down there.
2: that was was a very interesting time and it also you know it sort of helped me in in my practice now even you know because we were Sort of on a, quite a cutting edge of fashion photography at that stage. And it was kind of social doc- documentary more than fashion in a sense. Fantastic. But yeah, I'll, I'll hand over to Tanya. She can.
0: Yeah, Tanya, tell us about your story. Um, it's Slightly different and far more uh, rooted in, in the Joburg.
1: Yes, I was born in Johannesburg and grew up in the working class suburb of Judith's Pal, which is a sort of sub-suburb of Bertrams on the eastern side of the inner city where I grew up in an area which was, there were sort of small houses and blocks of flats and walk-up units and, you know, semi-detached units and in this sort of two city blocks in which my childhood was, you know, where I existed as, as a child, I feel in some ways like a sort of a mini urban, urban morphology of Johannesburg. You know, I walked to school, past various sort of housing types, even I reflect later, and, and I'm sort of very aware of, you know, which was the grocery shop or the pharmacy or the hairdresser just a block away from us. And I always think that quite parochial, but also rich neighborhood, maybe lay the ground for why it's easier for me to be, to think of the city from the immediate rather than from the bird's eye view. Um, and, and that's, that's my easier entry point into urban issues my work has always been in Johannesburg as a as a planner and much of it has intersected with the inner city but it was only in around 2008 that I got the opportunity to work in the inner city at the Johannesburg Development Agency and while I was there I was fortuitously taken on a walking tour of the eastern part of the inner city and I was told you must come there are these secret shopping centers in high rise buildings and what I saw in what I've later come to understand as the cross-border shopping precinct and the Ethiopian quarter of Johannesburg blew my mind but it also shifted something fundamentally in me because I was walking through these buildings and I was thinking on paper I'm so qualified to understand my city but I don't know what on earth is going on here and it opened a new fascination for me of my own city what well, I thought of as my own city. But I also had no basis on which to, to go in to explore it or to analyze it or understand it. And so I just started walking the inner city. I took a pocket camera, which gave me a reason to be there, to say, may I photograph the goods on your table? Or may I photograph this, may I photograph that? The camera gave me an entry point to talk to people. And I then started playing with images and making collages And I suppose what I didn't didn't realize then is that I was beginning to weave stories in my mind around the space. And that led to conversation, which led to at least tentative relationships with people in various spaces. And it was at that point that Mark and I met and that pocket camera went away forever because Mark's extraordinary camera came out. And I firmly moved to text and we then started exploring the possibility. We thought it would be maybe a newspaper article. We didn't go in with the idea of doing ten stories. We thought we'll just try something. You know, we don't know what. We just started driving the city together, mm. and and stories emerged, or things kept things. Interesting things captured our attention before we then sort of framed what the stories would would ultimately be about.
0: So much of what you say, Tanya, sort of resonates. The idea of you can be quote unquote qualified to work in the urban space, but actually the understanding and the practical solutions to what needs to be done and the understanding of what's going on with the different players is, is so far removed from, from reality. And I, I remember um quite clearly some of those photographs that you took and this sort of idea that there's a collection of photographs that was being you know you would you were you were growing and growing. And I think that became quite foundational within the, the inner city space at the time. But I mean Mark, you also make comment early on in the book that Joburg is a city of extreme generosity. It's a glorious space for a writer and photographer to work in. It's such a strong sort of image of saying, look, it's a great place to be and and, and to develop the skill, the art and the reflection.
2: It is an extraordinary city as a photographer and a writer. The, the stories are completely abundant. I don't think, you know, there are, not, there are not many cities in the world that where one's personal life goes through so many transitions. You know, you see it changing. My my days in Yeovil, which were not that long ago, and now Yeovil, you know, is a very, very, very different place. And that's happened within years. And so one can almost track that, and you can certainly track it photographically, because the change is happening daily. I mean, in terms of our stories, there would be times where, you know, you go back to the same space a week later, and that whole place has changed. It's no longer utilized for what you began the story with, you know, there are new people in there, there's a new, there's there's just a, a new thing. And I think that's happening all the time in the city, which makes it fascinating. There are not many cities, you know, if you come from a place like London, although there's a lot of change within all cities, this for some reason feels like very dominant and the inner city represents that it's for me is the area that's changed the most certainly in my experience my experience of driving through Johannesburg and the the sort of window was the frame kind of thing and one looked longingly at places and think you know I'd love to go in there but how do you go in there and should I go in there and shouldn't I will I get robbed all of that sort of stuff goes through but actually you know when when one enters the spaces that all changes and it's a fascinating city.
0: I'm really interested to try and understand the process that the two of you went through in what I guess would have been a narrowing down process from a city which is ex- as ex- extremes in terms of, of different land uses, different densities, different typologies, different people, different communities playing within that space, but you've got it down, you narrowed it down in the book to 10 spaces. I think there are about f- five or six which are what I would call heart of the CBD and then the rest more peripheral to the central business districts itself or Marshall Towns, Newtown, etc. But what was the process that led you down to say, okay, we're going to have- there's going to have to be a sort of a, a prioritization, some some we're going to have to exclude and maybe come back to at a later stage.
1: We started with quite a simple concept, which was that we wanted stories that talked about place and that each story would be able to say something about Johannesburg and something different from what we had seen in, in the other stories. So it was place, it was person or people, and it was Movement, livelihood, activity,
2: and movement. Yeah.
1: movement. Actually, we started quite. A, yes, we started, we
2: started on movement.
1: Yes, the first story we thought of, the first, the first image that captivates both of us was men pushing bloodied cow heads down the inner city street in trolleys, and we thought, wouldn't it be lovely to tell a story or to trace a story along movement that we would do journeys of people, whether it was those people, or people who took a longer journey, like waste reclaimers, who would journey across several suburbs of Johannesburg, and in fact, that was the starting point. Yes. So yes, when we pared it down, we pared it down to activity and place and person, and then came at the stories from different angles, depending on what we discovered once we went out there. So we spent many hours and weeks in various places, and then it's about being really porous in the space to feel whether there's a story and whether there is a visual story and whether those coincide. So that was about us being in spaces, driving through, talking with each other all the time, spending some time. You know, sometimes Mark would say, that's fantastic for image. And I would really struggle with, but what's the story or vice versa. And in fact, we would go down the journey with the story for a long time before we would necessarily both connect and feel oh, actually, there is something to say here and something to follow. In several cases, our stories might pick up a theme, such as waste reclaiming, and there'd be different personalities in that theme. And then we would go to different spaces in Johannesburg. It's not that there were 10 spaces we looked at. You know, if we looked at a building like Master's Mansions, or a building like the Anstey's Building, or the Yoval Market, then we were very specifically in particular place but in other instances sort of crossed the city. And so it's difficult to say what made us choose those 10, except to say these are the first 10 that came to mind, or the first 10 that came to mind and were successful as stories. But there are many more that would make a social history of Johannesburg. But these are the 10. Yeah,
2: and the, the movement thing was was quite important. And I think subconsciously all the stories have that in a sense. I suppose, you know, most stories have that, but this the sense of, Coming into the city and going out of the city, all those journeys, whether you're coming from Zimbabwe or the Congo or, or wherever it is, the sense of physically walking through the city and the city sort of spreading out and going to to other areas, I think it's, I don't know, so I think it's quite an important...
1: Sometimes it's the movement of goods because yeah. trade is yeah. so important in the, in the stories. So the movement of goods, I mean, it's a fascinating moment of being in the Yovel market. And one of the people who runs in to sell something to a woman who we're interviewing and she opens a bag of dried fish. The fish has come from, I think- Zambia. From Zambia. Zambia hmm. And it's being sold in a Yovel market, but the same person also brings in beans and cassava and palm oil, etc., from several countries and has a network where she sells that, not just in Johannesburg, but in Cape Town in East London. And she connects with Somali traders, who are driving trucks to various parts of the country and her goods go there. And this person's entire business is, you know, mm. on a cell phone in a backyard in Yeovil. The mobility is just blows the mind around what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa and where Johannesburg is a port for all of that.
2: Yeah. So yeah, mobility
1: yeah. is very important.
2: That's a good description as a port because it's it has that sense, you know, that. Things are coming in and they're distributed from here to all over the continent, yeah.
0: On that same topic of mobility and journey, a lot of the stories talk about the international migration patterns. You've alluded already to certain of the communities and people you spoke to from very diverse backgrounds from across the African continent who've come here. And I, that's always been the story of Johannesburg, a sort of homing beacon for migrant workers, whether it's from Europe, whether it's from African continent, the success stories, as well as the tragedies in that. I do think that many of the stories that are reflected in the, in the book um, really show you the challenges. And on the one hand, there's the opportunity of a big city with the with the network and the economic market for people to trade in and have a space and ultimately place. But the challenges that come with that and the conditions, I think, are, are, are quite stark. You talk about the, the sheep's heads in the trolley, and that that opens the book. I think it's ESCOP is the first story right down there in the heart of the CBD. And the images, first thing I was, what am I looking at here? Is this an abattoir? And it's not an abattoir. This is the next part down the line of this economic journey. Maybe, Mark, you want to tell us a bit about that and, you know, walking into that space How were you welcomed into that space to tell that story?
2: That that, that took place in a space called in in, on sort of the edge of the CBD, just in fact over Mandela Bridge. It was an abandoned space. I mean, when, when we first walked in, it's pretty shocking, not in a, just in a wow kind of way. I'd never encountered something like that. Then the sort of practicalities take over, you know, one's got to try and find a friendly person, to kind of engage with and start talking. And hopefully through that first engagement, maybe you get to take the first image. That space was more complicated than any of the other spaces, I think, that we were in. It was, firstly, it was the most foreign to me. And especially in the context of a sort of first world city, in a sense, that a few blocks down the road was the banking sector. And here, you know, there's another... A whole world going on you know and one's encounters are, are varied you know there's in that space there was a bit of alcohol alcohol always makes for problems basically because you never quite know how people are going to react and where they're going to go to but in the in that instance we met up with a couple of people who were incredibly friendly and and as in all the spaces we've been into it's always you know what are you doing here there's as much Sort of interest in us as two people that uh, that they never see in those spaces, as we have for what's going on in that space. You know, they were as surprised to see us as I was surprised to see what was taking place there. You know, our interest and their interest kind of equate on a, on a level, and then you find people that are interested in telling you how this thing works, and then there's. Equally good, many people who say they don't want their photographs taken, and one leaves, you know, those alone. But usually, and we've all, you know, because of the nature of the stories and going back and going back to the same space over and over again. When you return and you take a photograph of somebody, and everybody comes around and looks at it, and suddenly, you know, the person who was a bit drunk and, and belligerent and told you to fuck off or whatever it is, is suddenly now wanting a photograph and so the whole dynamic shifts and from there it it opens up and it's always opened up actually we've had very no experiences of it not opening up
1: i think we have had to be careful There's, there's a politics of approachability so we've also been careful about not defining in the way that one would as a town planner what is public space and what is private space but to assume that a space that we're entering we're entering As the newcomers. And we've got to be careful about the politics of approachability around that and to stand back and to watch. Or, you know, it's it's difficult to answer. It's not that we've always got it right. Mark fortunately carries the camera with him and the camera defines what you're there for. It immediately gives away something. I would have that with the notebook, but the notebook also looks like you might be a bureaucrat coming to close somebody down. And so it's not as comfortable. In fact, I often don't take the notebook out. For the first couple of times that we are at mm-hmm. a place, and we have led wrongly, you know, made mistakes. We walked into one space, which I just wish we could have gotten the story of, and it's a space that's closed down in Leaberta Avenue, um, which was this incredible place that made gravestones, Tombstone. gravest, tombstones. And I walked in. Mark had seen it before. I walked in with him, sort of a week or two later, and. I walked in with my notebook ready to get the story that Market had told me about. And this couple saw the notebook and it just shut that story down. And, and that was it. You know, we could just kind of never go back. You know, being careful and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. But certainly about being utterly respectful that people are making a livelihood in the space. And also they're going about their business doing that and our need is to respect that thing about the, the car heads and the chopping of car heads that we had to come to terms with is this is a really normal part of daily life in Johannesburg, that car heads are taken from butchers into particular spaces where the meat is sliced off and it is then taken in bags to taxi ranks and other parts of the city where it is bryed for food. And, and it's, it's our ignorance, you know, that it's not a normal part of, of the city. And, and I think in many of the places, in many of the stories, there is this normalizing. Well, there, there, yes, there yeah. is, there's our coming to terms with these normal things rather than, you know, feeling, feeling that, yes. that things that we're seeing are exotic because, because they're not, they might be new to us. And I think that's also part of Wake Up. This is Johannesburg. is part of Wake Up. This is really what's going on in the city. There's, normal activity and the making of livelihoods that might be messy, but it's giving a large number of people opportunity in the city and it's happening around us and Mm. in the shadows and often in the shadows that we cast ourselves because we ourselves are blinded to it. Yeah, and, and And, and,
2: you know, walking into that space in the first time was like shocking in, as I said, in that sort of wow factor way. The, The next time it really quickly becomes quite mundane. And you stand there taking photographs, and there's bits of meat that are like splattering on you, and there are rats everywhere. And it's you, one just takes that it's not a big deal. You know, they would also like to have running water and tiled sinks and be doing things in a different way, but it's just the way it is. And the practice is feeding people a place of food for 20, 20 rand a plate that you can't get anywhere else, you know. and. Uh, yeah. It's what it is. Um,
1: I think we've also come very close to, to some extent, the failure of infrastructure and the extent of neglect in the city. So, whether it's people having to chop cow heads and prepare meat in disused, abandoned space where there isn't running water, or whether it's people carrying buckets of water in Hillbrow, in this high rise, high density space in order to to wash or to have drinking water, there's an enormous neglect, an enormous stress on the city, a stress of densification, but also a stress of failing infrastructure that's very alarming. Many of the spaces that we've gone into, there's been that sense of um, how people have to improvise in a city that doesn't serve the poor and that criminalizes a great deal of Mm. of their activities. You know, yeah, so no, absolutely.
2: Him. That came about quite distinctly when we, I think it's Zola, the the one chapter, which is uh, the story is, uh, of, the of, the, of the binding taxi. point of taxi. I'd driven past that specific space on numerous occasions. And as soon as you look down under the bridges, it's very dark and shadowed and taxis. And your immediate thing is taxi drivers. You can't go in that space. Taxi drivers will kill you kind of thing, you know. It has that sense about it. But once you actually make the decision to just go, as we did, and, you know, we drive in and everybody's trying to direct us out of it because they can't believe that we want to be there, trying to get, you know, once you stop the car and get out and like, what are you doing here? And and suddenly taxi drivers become really human and they're not who they made out to be. They're just people who are doing an extremely stressful job at this point are, are sort of taking a break. And they want to chat about their work and about their life and about what we are, who we are and our lives. And I mean, without sort of romanticizing it, it's a very like human, normal human experience of like, what are you doing and what are you doing? And how do things work out for you in the suburbs and how do they work out for you? You know, it's very humbling.
1: One of the interesting things around Zola, which is a taxi binding point under the Moy Street Bridge on the southern end of the of the CBD is that taxi drivers are waiting there for long hours. And then there are all kinds of informal traders who take that opportunity to try to sell something or who provide a service to those taxi drivers. And although it is hyper-masculine space, there are women in the space as well. And so if I could just read about Monica Chauke. Monica Chalker's compact melamine fold-up table does not at first make an impression. It is located between the serving areas of three other cooking mamas on the secondary corridor of the taxi stand. In addition, there is a fresh fruit and vegetable stall a short distance away on either side of her stand. But Monica is unperturbed by the competition for the appetites of the 600 drivers. She knows that her offering is unique and that by midday she will have sold out and made her 300 grand daily profit. Her niche is simple, she serves only breakfast, but there is nothing simple about what is on offer. For Monica has, over four years, worked out who likes what for breakfast and is happy to cater to the specific needs of her customers. This means making six egg and tomato, three cheese and tomato and four chicken mayonnaise sandwiches, as well as six cheeseburgers each morning. It also means baking scones, frying fat cook and preparing a soup of beans and bones, as well as a meat stew. These are accompanied by a selection of hot and cold drinks, tea, coffee, milo, juice, and warm or cold milk. There is also breakfast cereal and bread and peanut butter on offer. Monica learned the art of working an intense production line at the bakery where she worked before she started her own business. Her commitment to providing variety, no matter how small a quantity, has earned her loyal customers, but it demands a tight schedule. She wakes at 2am to prepare and package the food and equipment that she brings here before dawn. Each day she transports a primer stove, two kettles, three pots, a large bucket for water, a cooler box, a flask, a jug, polystyrene cups and paper plates. In addition to the food, beverages and condiments, she doesn't mind the effort. I want to work here because no one is controlling me. It's for myself. If I lose, I lose. If I win, I win. Every single cent I earn is my own, she says. How does she manage this six days every week? My boyfriend wakes up at 2am to help me. He also brings and fetches me each day in his car i ask no in my car he drives it
0: thanks so much for sharing that with us tanya and i mean that this conversation or the discussion now i think illustrated a lot of the contradiction and the contestation in relation to on the one hand the infrastructure provision urban governance and then this idea of economic opportunity i think to one of the parts of the introduction where you go back to the contestation around 2018 I think it was then mayor mashaba making very clear statements that we do not stand f- for this i think the the quotes were along the line of we're not going to sit back and allow people like you to bring us ebolas in the name of small business health of our people first i mean that was a very clear message from the then uh, mayor i'm not even sure how many mayors we are on from Mayor <laughs> mashaba the last few weeks and years but the point is that we've seen the origins of covid certainly seems to have pointed towards sanitary conditions environmental health so on the one hand i think we can we can take issue with some of that statement around people like you and what 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 does that in itself mean but the idea of saying look we're going to take environmental health seriously within a city which purports to be an african world-class city and for all but at the same time very clear that it has to have certain levels of infrastructure and that is not necessarily tied to shiny new brt stations or student housing or the tertiary education and social housing that we so so often think about in my mind when I think of Joburg. How do we deal with this contestation between, on the one hand, saying, look, it's important that we support the environmental health of our communities, at the same time provide infrastructure that allows for the economic performance of the inner city, supporting so many more people within that space. Is that a fair observation? And any thoughts that you might have, Tanya?
1: I mean, our stories aren't trying to make a policy point, but on the Herman Mashaba point on his criminalizing of normal activity in the inner city, I mean, clearly there's no no romanticizing of people not having infrastructure and the municipality does need to be providing that infrastructure and maintaining that infrastructure so that health and safety can be preserved and also so that dignity can be upheld. In the inner city. There's an alarming lack of public toilets in the first instance in the inner city. What we found interesting was how the sort of balance board shifts all the time in Johannesburg. So as soon as somebody makes that kind of comment, there are others who are standing up for social justice in Johannesburg. And that certainly happened. And um, Hermanus Chaba was called in front of the Human Rights Commission for that comment. But we do talk about Livelihood and the stories, and and many of the stories about small scale and survivalist livelihoods in the inner city. But you know, one of our stories, Johannesburg Made in China, talks to the cross border shopping area where research has shown that in 50 city blocks, which is a very small part of the inner city because those city blocks are so tiny, having been laid out when Johannesburg was still a temporary mining camp, in those few city blocks, Only those people who are coming in from across the border to shop daily in Johannesburg to buy Chinese fast fashion and take it to sub Saharan Africa are spending over 10 billion a year in the inner city. And that is twice the turnover of Santon City Shopping Centre. So it's an enormous economy. There is the call and the requirement to uphold dignity and to maintain health and safety. But in addition to that, There is such a benefit in taking seriously the economy that is happening in the city. And then Mark can talk to the economy of waste. One of our stories talks, good riddance, talks to waste reclaimers and the role that they're playing in the inner city. And to think about how they're mitigating climate change on behalf of many of the suburban dwellers of the city. And and that's a story that takes us a little bit outside of the, of the inner city.
2: I mean, also just to go back a, a little bit, you know, in terms of the infrastructure or the lack thereof, you know, which the city is failing dismally at. But somehow the the informal sector are able to cater for themselves quite efficiently, actually. You know, on the one hand, I feel as though if they were left to it, they could run the inner city rather more efficiently than than what's being done at the moment. Obviously one needs toilets and water and things that, that help it, but people make a plan and it's quite extraordinary how efficient those plans are, you know. I don't know how many reclaimers there are in Johannesburg, but there must be somewhere between six and twelve thousand, I would think, or, and they're doing the most extraordinary job. The, the amount of waste that they're preventing from getting onto landfill sites, you know, is is unbelievable. And they live in incredibly harsh conditions. The work is, you know, backbreaking. Previously, they, they the waste the waste reclaimers have changed this a bit, but previously they were not really accepted in in suburban spaces. Everybody was terrified that actually what they were doing there was coming to steal and. And they were they weren't well received. You know, they weren't well received on the road because they were taking up a lane, they weren't received in the suburbs because they were leaving, supposedly leaving a mess. But these are, you know, these are people that that wake up at three, four in the morning, walk the whole day for 30 odd kilometers, they've got no time to steal. They're too busy earning a living to warrant any of that. And when one of the guys in our book who lives under the highway, literally under the highway, in a culvert in the concrete. When he climbs his way up to get into his little sleeping place and he's in Forest Town, which is an extremely wealthy area, the last thing on his mind is like worrying about someone who's got three cars or four cars.
0: It just doesn't enter the frame. I think the stories of Lebo and Nathlele, and Lucas Livingston given in Forest Town that has just been alluded to. Is there perhaps a reading that you'd like to reflect on from that?
1: We followed Lucas, Givenstone, and um, Livingston from Forest Town, where they live, into the inner city. And what was interesting about that was that the route went over the top of the Vitvatus Runt, uh, which sort of crests in Bramfontein. And so we, we followed them carrying their load from Forest Town up the busy roads, and then into the inner I city. Mean,
2: just as an and added thing, they they live in a little park between the Oppenheimer's home and Hollard Insurance. That's quite an ironic little space. Yes, uh, they're, so they're suspended the between
1: this these extreme yeah. markers and registers of wealth in the city, but living in the bush or in this highway yeah. culvert. So as they begin their journey which would take, would take them two and a half hours to drag these gargantuan loads over the over the Vitvartis Runt. We watched them and Lucas seemingly has the lightest burden. He has a double trolley, whereas the others have three articulated trolleys. His three bags are outnumbered by Livingston's five bags and the metal objects sticking out of Gibbon's bags add considerable mass to that load. But Lucas points out that the cardboard that occupies more than twice the capacity of the blue plastic quilted bag it is loaded into and on top of will weigh in at over 150 kilograms. And the plastic bottles and white paper will bring this to 265 kilograms. His body mass is 61 kilograms. When he arrives at the depot, he will be asked for 10 rand extra for cool drink from the cashier as he cashes in his load because, she says, she has been generous with the amounts she has recorded.
0: There's even kickbacks within the waste reclaiming space, and it's going to cost you a Coke at 10 rand for the benefit. Amazing, Tanya, and and again, Mark, I really appreciate you taking us through at least a couple of these examples. And there, I say there are 10, and the book is full of diverse stories, of interesting stories, of amazing photography, and an amazing array of circumstances that are reflected in there. Perhaps as we start to bring the conversation to a sort of natural conclusion, there are a few sort of questions I wanted to test with you. And you've already talked about sort of being shocked or delighted, I guess, in, in equal measure of places and the spaces and the people. But I mean, what looking back at it now and I say four years worth of effort and that's combined that's eight years of your 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 lives that you've put into this so anything that on reflection you'd put forward as that moment of the most surprising or the most revelatory in terms of your experience of the book and putting it together and the people that you met with along the way
2: there there are many I think the essential sort of surprise was the acceptance that we received from people That going into space that was very foreign in the beginning became, you know, largely accepting and people were willing to talk. And I didn't expect it to be as comfortable as it became. That was like a real added treat. You know, walking around Johannesburg with a camera is not the easiest thing to do. But touch wood, we had absolutely no problem throughout the time and people were just incredibly welcoming and willing to participate and and see what we what yeah who we were and yeah
1: for me the moment that stands out as the greatest surprise in a very delightful way is the moment when we were taken by the family that owns master mansions the building in town which hosted the first hat factory in Johannesburg and we had been taken through this exceptional story of this multi-generational family and this first hat factory and just the idea of hats in Johannesburg and a hat factory that made you know Winnie Mandela's hat for Mandela's inauguration and extraordinary moments and moments of you know this was not a story of poverty it was a story of but it was it was a story of entrepreneurship and the family took us to the top floor. They themselves were not living in the building anymore. And so we had to especially arrange on a Sunday morning to be taken to the top floor of the building, which hosted Johannesburg's first private Hindu temple that the family had built. And they said that their mother had last held puja there over 20 years ago. And all the way up these seven floors, as you were walking, Ajit, who was taking us, said, it's not going to be the same. And we said, it's okay. If we can just see the shell of the temple, that will be fine. And the temple is actually attached to a room on the top floor, which had been a sort of reception area of the temple, but is now inhabited by the caretaker. And so he we went through that, and then he opened these glass doors. And as he opened it, he said, it's not going to be the same. And he opened the doors, and we burst into tears, all of us who were there. Because it was exactly the same. It had sort of gold brocaded um, wallpaper. And there was just this gold light that came out of the temple. And there were the candlesticks that were there from her last, his mother's last puja. And around the temple were these images and icons and statues of gods and goddesses that had been the family's sort of sacred gods and and it was the most unexpected extraordinary it was it was as if we had reached in and touched the history of Johannesburg and had been given that privilege. So yeah, that for me stood out as the most delightful moment.
0: Absolutely fantastic, really beautiful story. I always ask when we're dealing with books that have come out and the authors and people who've put their life and soul into a product, I always say, wow, is there an appetite for, for part two, uh, whether it's another another 10 examples within Joburg or testing the same sort of approach, but in another of our big cities here in South Africa or beyond. And so what, what I'm going to offer you this time is to say, if I gave you the choice of saying you could do 10 more in Joburg or change the city up and do 10 elsewhere. Are you sticking or twisting? Where would you start, Mark? I'm I'm sticking. Sticking, (laughs) fantastic. I'll
2: I'll, I'll stay in Johannesburg and do another ten quite happily. Yeah,
1: and we won't won't reveal what it is, but we are working on more work, on more stories, um, in the city.
0: Absolutely fantastic. More stories to tell, you know. Um, Yeah. Where can people find the book? Uh, it has been published or it's still to be launched. I always get confused between the the launch and the actual availability of the book. So perhaps just take us through that and where, what's it going to cost? Where can people get it?
1: The book has been published by Duke University Press and it was published late in December. So it's recently available in South Africa. It's available at Love Books in Johannesburg in Melville and also at Clark's Bookshop in Cape Town. All people can buy it on Amazon. And the Kindle book is also available on Amazon. The price of the book is 650 Rand, which is a hefty price for what might feel like a popular book. But in fact, the book does that unique crossover of being popular and academic. So it's a a very good price for an academic book, which is 350 pages and has 250 full-color images. And in fact, we had to raise a large sum of money in order for the book to be brought out at that price and in and in full colour.
0: Before we let you go to enjoy the rest of your Saturday afternoon and the rest of the weekend, perhaps a bit more about your own work. Uh, Tanya, let's start with yourself. You obviously have been around you in the academic as well as the practitioner space. Where can people find out a bit more about you and the work that you've done?
1: Pete, I, I have a website, tanyazak.com, and my work is – It's sort of available there and it's a mixture of policy and research and practical work as an urban planner, uh, mostly in Johannesburg, but also looking at urban issues in the country more generally, and also some academic writing.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. And from your side, Mark? From my side, yes, a bit complicated. I mean, work is generally complicated, but for
2: some reason I've sort of morphed into this urbanist kind of photographer. And I do really enjoy it. And I've been doing work alongside researchers at WITS and with Tanya and various other people. So it's, yeah, I find myself in a situation which is more in the research sort of area in terms of earning a living. My my personal work sort of fits more into these books and that, that, that kind of thing. But there's, you know, it's, it's a struggle to earn a living through that so the research has been very interesting it sort of dovetails very well you know research and photography because they often don't complement each other but they do in in the in the big picture in a sense often i find things that research hasn't found or the other way around you know so i think i find it quite interesting and my my work is on instagram it's mark lewis photos at mark lewis photos is the instagram account and yeah
0: that's it. Thank you. And I, I say that's certainly worth checking out. I think the those of the, those yeah, listeners who are it, 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 interested in the Instagram, go, go see some of the great work that Mark has done. And uh, again, just going through the websites earlier this afternoon or Googling some really beautiful images out there. So thank you. Thanks to the two of you, Mark and Tanya, for a really fascinating last hour or so conversation. All the very, very best for the book, in terms of its place in telling the story of Joburg and putting Joburg again on the map with all of its contradictions, all of its fun and games. I think this is a very valuable contribution. And thank you so much for spending the time talking to the Talking Transformation podcast this afternoon. Thanks to both of you and have a lovely rest of the weekend and keep safe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform that's at Talking Transfo and the number one Or alternatively, via our email address, talkingtransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track flags as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.